Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we make a run for it with our storytellers from Run, our third show in our action theme season held on January 31st, 2017 at Jump in downtown Boise. Here's a rundown of our three featured storytellers. Rich Harris is in a trial run for the U.S. Olympics team. Haley Brown is on a run to save her daughter. And Shadi Ismail gets the runaround as he tries to flee his home country of Syria for his life. It's time to take action. It's story time. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Harris. Good evening. Thanks for being here tonight. I'm, uh, I'm from a very large family. I'm one of six boys. We're eight years apart. And one of my family's, my parents' priorities when I was a kid was family dinners together. And you know, with a dad that works, mom was always at home. We got six kids going all these different directions, but my mom would hold dinner. So more often than not, we had these family dinners together. And as most of you know that, uh, that do this, a lot of conversation happens. And being all boys, Everybody's doing sports. That was invariably what uh, what we talked about at dinner. And my dad liked to chime in with uh, stories of his own. And I think a little bit he was reliving some of his glory days. My dad's from uh, Montevideo, Minnesota. And he was a Monty Mohawk. And he loved to tell stories about when he was on the, uh, the baseball team, the football team, the basketball team. But he also did track. And he'd mentioned track. And in the 60s, There wasn't track like we have now. I didn't know anything about it. And I was intrigued because my dad would talk about the pole vault. And in the 40s, you had bamboo poles or Swedish steel. And to hear my dad say it, talk about it, you would have sworn that my dad was a 14-foot pole vaulter with a bamboo pole. He loved talking about the pole vault, running the relays in high school track, being a sprinter. And I said to myself, you know, I think I'm going to do that. And you wonder sometimes, I do as a parent now, is anybody listening to me, my kids, you know, when you're at the table and you're talking, does anything sink in? Well, I'm standing here tonight because of that con- those conversations and those stories my dad would tell at the dinner table. So when I'm a freshman, I go out for the track team, and I'm going with the pole vaulters. And if any of you have ever done the pole vault or you've seen what it's like, it's a little scary, and I had no idea that after day one I realized I am not a pole vaulter, and I've got a fear of heights. So pole vaulting's out. (laughs) All right, well, I can still sprint. I'm going to go with the sprinters. Well, I wasn't very fast. Sprinting's out. Hurdling is out. I'm pretty small. And if you look at me, I'm certainly not going to be a shot putter or a discus thrower. Those of you that know about track and field, you know what happens to kids like me when you can't do anything else. You're told to go with the distance runners. Nothing could be worse. So I'm told, why don't you go with Mr. Olofsson, the distance runners? It's, it's, a, it, it's a fate worse than death to be with the distance runners. Do you know what distance runners do? They voluntarily go out and they run for miles. And to me, I'm thinking, this is the craziest thing ever. Who would do that? Well, as fate would have it, I had a little bit of a talent for distance running. One thing leads to another. And it's 1984. I'm a professional distance runner. I have been since I graduated from college four years before. 
And I'm at the Olympic trials in Los Angeles. You know, the games were in Los Angeles that year, so they had the trials in the Coliseum, so the, the athletes could get used to the, um, to the uh, atmosphere there and give us a little bit of an edge. And so here we are at the trials. And in the 1500, you have, you have to run three times if you're going to make the Olympic team. So you've got to do the prelims, you have to do the semifinal, and then you run the finals. And in the final, as we all know, this is America, First three across the line, make the team. It's straightforward, it's great. I'm feeling pretty good. I've had a great winter, I've had a new coach, I've done a better winter of training than I've ever done before. I've had a pretty good season leading up to the trials. And these are in uh, mid-June, and the Olympics will be in mid-August. I'm thinking, you know, legitimately, it's, I, I, could, I could potentially be there. In 1980, when I graduated from college, kind of I came out of the blue. At the last minute, I qualified for the trials. And I'll tell you, if it had been a 1,450-meter race, I'd be standing up here saying, I'm an Olympian. But it was a 1,500-meter race, <laughs> so I'm not an Olympian. I kind of faded, and I was known as, oh, you're the guy that got fifth wearing that yellow bandana. And that's what people knew about me. I'm the guy that wears the yellow bandana. And I'm here to tell you, it's, it was never a bandana. It's actually a Cub Scout neckerchief that my mom, <laughs> my mom got out of, the, um, out of the attic when I was in high school. And it happened to match the high school colors, so my coach let me wear it. So here we are at the Olympic trials. We're on the line, and you've seen how runners start. Down like this, the starter raises his hand, fires the gun, off we go. 1,500 is three and three-quarter laps around the track. And I do not understand where that came from. Four laps around the track is 1,600 meters. Why don't we just run a 1,600? But 1,500 is the metric mile. We have run 1,400 meters. We're coming off the turn. I have to be in the top six to make it to the semifinals. Done deal. Four of us have broken away from the pack, and we're running one, two, three, four, right, we've spread across the track, coming up the home stretch. And by this time, we're not, the four of us aren't racing, because we know we got this in the bag. So you're just cruising, just take it easy. You don't want to expend too much energy as you run towards the finish line. I'm, I'm feeling good. I got this in the bag. About 10 yards from the finish line, I have no idea what got into me. I decide I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn around and see how everybody else is doing. How are you guys doing back there? The next thing I know, I'm on my hands and knees, and out of the corners of my eye, all these legs start going by me. I stand up, and I literally take three strides, and I'm across the finish line. I, you probably guessed I wasn't in the top six. <laughs> I have no idea what just happened. I turn around, I watch the last few people come across the finish line. I turn back, this is the LA Coliseum, and, and like any giant stadium, you know, there's the huge screen up in the stadium. I get to watch in full color, in slow motion, what just happened. As I turn around to, to check on everybody else behind me, I kicked myself. I went straight down. I banged my head on the track. I, I have no recollection of this at all. And as I had gotten up, that's uh, to my hands and knees, that's when everybody went by. 
So I'm out. Now, when you finish your event, they usher you off the track and you have to go into the media tent. And in the previous years of my pro career, I had a minor amount of success, but I never really had any media attention. And now I've got more media attention than I, I ever want to see, more than I'd ever had in my life collectively. And of course, everybody wants to know, what happened? How do you feel? And so I, I sit and, and, and do the interviews. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very composed. You know, that's part of life, on and on. Okay, the next race finishes, and you guys get out of here, and we're going to talk to the next people. So you leave the tent, and it's in the parking lot of the Coliseum. I walk out of the tent. <sighs> there's my mom. There's my dad. There's one of my brothers who'd come out to watch. What do you say? What, what would a parent say? What can I say to them? I lost all my composure. I completely break down. I am sobbing. Nobody says anything. So we start kind of walking off through the parking lot. And then my dad, and if you ever knew my dad, this is quintessential Dick Harris, puts his arm around my shoulder, and he squeezes me tight, and he says, Richie, babe, you're just getting started. I just fell at the Olympic trials. I, I've embarrassed myself in front of a stadium full of people, and I'm just getting started. And my dad went on, you know, telling me I've got other races. I'm going to go to Europe later on in the summer, and I've got years ahead of me. And you know, shake it off. I shook it off. I flew over to London, spent a couple of weeks living with my brother Brendan in London while the games are going on, getting ready to do the, uh, the, the second half of the European season. And uh, the Olympics end, all the track people go to Europe, that's where track and field is really big. And I've got eight or ten races set up, and it turns out I had the best season anybody could ever ask for. I ended up... Uh, I got to stand on the podium with an Olympic gold and silver medalist, John Walker and Steve Cram. I ended up running John Walker, Olympic gold medalist, to the wire in a race in London. And I got to laugh with him as we crossed the finish line because I just, I knew I was going to win that race and I was this close to winning. And here he comes and he outleans me. And he had done the same thing to me two years earlier in Norway. And he had told me, if you keep running like that, you're going to win some races. I'm trying to win, and you're beating me, for goodness sakes. <laughs> I have the season of a lifetime. I run, my four, I run my best times in four events. The season ends, and they come out with the, the lists of fastest times. And these are lists of fastest times I'm talking about now, not, not rankings. And it turns out... I had run the fastest time of any American that year, and I had run the sixth fastest time in the world. And for me, you know, I, I had fallen and listening to my dad, you're just getting started, you get back up and you get out there. And you know, as it turns out, my dad was right. I was just getting started. Haley Brown. So, I've been running for nearly 
25 years of my life, off and on. Not fast like Rich, but running. I've run to get in shape, to stay in shape, to hang out with friends and be counseled by them, to help relieve stress. And in that time, I've run numerous races for various causes and reasons. I even ran a marathon once while I was pregnant with my youngest child, Nora. And I thought that would be the hardest race I would ever run with her. But I was soon proven wrong. When Nora was about two months old, I was changing her diaper. And I saw a little brown spot on her bum. It was about one inch long. And I thought, oh, how cute, a little birthmark I didn't notice. And I wiped her little bum and put her diaper on and carried on. And a short time later, my husband said to me, you know, I saw another birthmark or brown spot on Nora's back. And I thought, oh my goodness, how cute, another birthmark I didn't notice. And not too long after that, my sister, who had been babysitting Nora, said, you know, I saw a couple more brown spots on Nora's thigh, and I kind of think you should get them checked out. And I said, oh, Hillary, she's fine. But in my heart, I was like, mm, something's weird. I don't think it's normal to get birthmarks after you're born. I think you're born with with them. So I went home that night and I gave her a bath and I brought her to her room and laid her on her changing table in her lamp light or lamp lit bedroom and I checked her whole body. And I found eight of these brown spots. And then I really got concerned and I thought, this can't be right. Maybe it's her medication she's on for acid reflux. I don't know why anybody would have eight birthmarks after they were born. So I decided to consult my go-to physician, Dr. Google. And I did a search, and I had to kind of dig, actually, to figure out what in the world are these brown spots. And I came upon some images that looked similar to Nora's and found out that these brown spots are actually called cafe au lait, or cows for short. And I thought, OK, she has cafe au lait. That's definitely what she has. So why does she have them, and why does she have so many, and why does she keep getting them? So I had to dig a little deeper, and I came across some terrifying images of these people covered with lumps. And it turns out they have this genetic disorder called neurofibromatosis. That's a tongue twister, I know, so we call it NF for short. Neurofibromatosis causes tumors to grow on your nervous system throughout your body. It can cause debilitating chronic pain, blindness, deafness, and it can even lead to cancer. My heart sunk, and a pit the size of Kentucky grew in my stomach because cafe au laits are a symptom of neurofibromatosis. And the criteria is, if you have six or more that are five millimeters or greater, it's likely neurofibromatosis. Well, as you know, Nora had eight. So I told my husband about it. And the next day, we decided to call our family doctor. And we said, you know, Nora has cafe au lait, And we really want you to see her today. And if you can't see her today, let us know, because we're going to find somewhere that can. And they got us in that day. And we went to the doctor. And we walked in. And the doctor came in. And he said, yeah, those are cafe au lait spots. Are you concerned it's neurofibromatosis? And we said, yeah, we are. And he said, you know, we can test for that now. We didn't used to be able to, but we can test for that now. And I said, let's do it. And he said, OK, but I, I want you to know the test is really expensive. And I said, do you think I give a shit? 
And he said, no, I don't, but I had to tell you that. So I said, okay, do the test. And he said, well, I can't because I've never tested anybody for neurofibromatosis and I don't know what the orders are, so I'm gonna have to call you back. And this frustrated me really bad because I wanted her blood drawn today and the test results tomorrow. So we had to go home and he called us and the next day and said, okay, you need to go to the, the hospital to have her blood drawn. So we went there and they'd called us back and they took us into this room and I swear to God, the only thing in that room was a stainless steel crib and white walls. And the phlebotomist took my baby out of my arms and laid me in this crib and drew blood from her two-month-old arm. And I lost it. And I took her and I ran to our car, my husband right on my heels, and we sat there and we cried because all of a sudden our future was uncertain. Was it full of stainless steel cribs and hospital rooms, needle pokes and doctor's appointments? Well, $4,000 and 28 days later, it was confirmed, Nora has NF. Now, the rush of emotions and feelings that overtook me were unbearable for the most part. I felt a lot of anger, a lot of worry, worry like I'd never felt before, and guilt. And I tried to maintain my composure because after all, I was a mom. I had two kids, actually. I have a two-year-old and a two-month-old, and I'm a wife, and I'm a dental hygienist. And so I had to put on a happy face, but really inside, I was, I was suffering. But there was, most of the time I could keep it together, but there was one feeling or emotion that I couldn't get a hold of, and that was grief. I didn't know why I was grieving. I was grieving to the degree that I grieved when my dad died. And I needed help with this one. And so I called our genetic counselor who was assigned to us after Nora was diagnosed with NF, and I said, Rachel, why am I feeling this way? It doesn't make sense. Nora's not sick, per se, and she's not dying. And she said, Haley, because you're grieving the loss of the child you thought you had. And at that moment, I knew I couldn't take Nora and run to the foothills like I wanted to and run away. I had to take her and I had to run towards this problem. And I was gonna fix it. And the way I was gonna fix it was by becoming a geneticist. I was gonna go back to school, and I was gonna become a geneticist, and I was gonna cure NF. <laughs> and the funny thing is, my husband, who's having all these same emotions at the same time as me, had the same exact idea. <laughs> and we realized soon, that's silly, it's not gonna happen. I don't have time to fail genetics courses. <laughs> so we dismissed it and I thought, no, what I need to do is I need to raise money. I need to support the geneticists who are already out there working on NF. Because see, I had done that before for cancer research. The marathon I told you about, I ran that and raised money for cancer, so I knew I could do it again. But this time I wanted to do something that my husband and I could do together. And a marathon wasn't it. It's too time consuming. We had two young children. We had to figure out something else that we could do. So I went back to my Google, my buddy, and I began another search. And everything I kept coming across 
was endurance things like triathlons and marathons and Ironmans, and that just wasn't it. So I was kind of stuck. I was empty-handed at this point. And then I got a phone call from my mom, and she says, Haley, I keep meaning to tell you about this thing I saw on CNN. It's about NF. You've got to watch it. And she said, look it up. Look it up on YouTube. And so I did. And sure enough, it was about NF. I couldn't believe it. Someone else out there hated NF as much as I did, and they were working to end it. It was the Cupid's undie run. <laughs> it was perfect. It was as if the universe had handed it to me and said, Haley, you need to do this. It's one mile-ish. <laughs> it's a big party, a brief run, in your bedroom's best on Valentine's weekend. I knew I could run a mile. I knew Dom could with a little training. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, this is it. But the best part about Cupid's Endy Run is they raise money, all their fundraising dollars go to an organization called the Children's Tumor Foundation, which just so happens to be the biggest non-government organization that works collaboratively, collaboratively, to end NF with research. Perfect. So I went to their website to find a city nearest us who's hosting Cupid's Undie Run. And I didn't make it that far. Because there was a tab off to the side that said, bring Cupid's Undie Run to your city. And I clicked it. And I filled out the form. And I submitted it. And I went, oh, crap. <laughs> what have I done? I can't plan an event. The only thing I've ever planned is my wedding. And I didn't talk to Dominic about this. Oh my god. I wanted something that was less time consuming. What have I done? A month goes by. I'm still having the same thoughts. This can't. What, what was I thinking? I should have just registered for the city closest to us, which just so happened to be Seattle at the time. Another month goes by. I still hear nothing. And I'm like, wait a second. I could have done this. Why didn't you give me a chance? I can plan an event. Shortly after that, I get an email. Haley, we'd like to talk to you about your application to bring Cupid's Undy Run to Boise. And after a couple emails back and forth and a phone interview, I was awarded race director for the Cupid's Undy Run Boise chapter. <laughs> Turns out, I can plan an event, a good one a very successful one. Here in Boise, our event takes place at Tom Graney's downtown, and it spills out into 6th Street, so we've had to close the street. People come dressed, ready to have a good time. Men in fishnets and cut-off shorts, women in tutus and rainbow wigs. We have our best waxing salon there. In case your husband's not humiliated enough by wearing Daisy Dukes, you can take him up on stage, give some money, for the fundraiser and have his chest hair ripped off his body. <laughs> People love it. <laughs> but it's been a whopping success. And I, I thank my friends and family who came out in droves to help me put this thing on. And not only that, the community has come together. City of Boise welcomed me with open arms. Boise Police Department, helping hands. Everybody has been so great. And to this date, 
Boise's Cupid's Endy Run has raised over $200,000, and we've had over 1,200 runners. And our participants love it. While they're there, they're laughing and they're happy and they're excited to be there. And we celebrate them before and after the brief one-mile run that has jump ropes and hula hoops and an obstacle course. I mean, it's the craziest thing that these people come up with. <laughs> um, but overall, Cupid's Endy Run is, takes place you know, across the nation, 36-plus cities in the U.S. and Australia. And to date, they've raised $11.5 million for the Children's Tumor Foundation. And we're doing it all again in 11 days-ish. And you, too, can take your pants off for charity. <laughs> it's not too late to join. And if you want a reduction on your registration fee, I've set up a promo code that's called STORY. That's the code, all caps, and you get 20% off registration. Anyway. I digress. So you're probably wondering, how is Nora? Nora will be turning five on February 7th, and she's good. In fact, she's great. She can steal your heart with one look in your eye, but the best part is she's healthy, and I like to think that's because I've paid it forward. But none of this could have happened if I hadn't run. It all started with running. And the best thing about it is that instead of running to save my life, I now run to save hers. Ladies and gentlemen, Shadi Ismail. Thank you, guys. I really need it because it's the first time I stand up front all these people, so thank you. <laughs> So my story is a little bit different about Rich and Helly. They run for marathon, but I believe I run for marathon for my life. It's a little bit different. Okay, I raise and I born and raised. Okay, I don't speak English very not very well, but so don't judge me. If you need to translate, so ask will help. My story starts. I raise. I born and raised in very nice family in Middle East in Syria. And was my dad really was busy at night, so it was four kids, boys and four girls. So it was a really big family. And my mom got divorced with my dad when I was maybe two and a half or three, so I really don't know my mom very well, but I know my stepmom, and I love her so much. She was like big, like the mom to me. I had very, very nice childhood till like I was in 18 or 19-ish when I Really, my dad caught me with a boy. Whoops. <laughs> they did not know that. I did not see this coming. <laughs> so what happened that night when my dad caught me uh, was really awful. They, my dad and my older brother burned my arm, my left arm, and uh, they cut my hair like very bad way to I have to shave it on zero, and they beat me with the wood and the wood broke on my arm and they beat me with the uh, middle thing. I don't know what's called in English, so don't ask. <laughs> and it really was a rough day. And I was in the moment when I was beating up and getting all this feeling in the same time, 
I felt like I was wrong what I did, but at the same time, like I feel it's me, but I don't know what I am yet. Kind of confusing. So barely they burned my arm to remind me what I did to sleep with the, or to have anything with the boy, it's wrong. And I did believe that for a second, but turn out, well, it's not working because I have a fiance now. <laughs> it's really did not burn the gay of me or anything. <laughs> So this was in 2004, and when my, God, my dad got me again, barely I'm not good in hiding myself. <laughs> so I, the second time my dad saw me, it was at our house, like three floors, and then we have our, my grandfather's house is two floors next to us, like very, very close, the family, so very close. My dad, I saw my dad walking to us, and I was kissing a boy, ooh, to me. And my dad saw me, so I, I, I did not, I know my dad promised me if he saw me doing this again, he will kill me. And I know when he promised that, I know he will do. So when I saw him walking to us, I just opened the door on the other side and just jumped, and I ran away. This is my first run. I ran in the night in the wood, me and my friend, because we don't know where we're gonna go. And then I decide, well, hey, I have my mom, different city in different city, and my dad never ever talked to her because he really don't like her anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> so I thought it's my safe spot to go. So I went to Damascus. I am from originally from Latakia. I went to Damascus. I went to mom. Mom, I love you, and came back. I want to be with you because she, I know, will never find out what happened with me in my dad's house. So I stayed there for maybe two years with her, working and doing my stuff, and I had to go to military. Obviously, in Middle East, if you're 19 or 20, you have to really go to military if you have brothers. So I had to go to military. I did not account the days in military, but I did spend two years and one month and four days in military. <laughs> it was awful. Especially like when I'm trying to hide myself to not be an explosion gay, like obvious. So it was really awful time and I finished my time in military and I went back to my mom's house and I lived my life normal. I'm trying being cool, hiding. I had a job like bartender in a, in a restaurant. And one day my mom told me, hey, I don't want you to go to work tonight. Just stay home. I said, okay, that's fine. She, I, maybe she need me to do something in the house. And when I was smoking, because I'm a smoker, so I was smoking in a window and I see people from my neighborhood, from my dad's neighborhood, walking through the neighbor like, oh my God, they, it's, it's very weird for me. So my feeling was, no, I need to run. It's not, I can't question what's going on. I have to run. If they caught me, they caught me. So I just jumped from the balcony and I left. It was first floor, it's not really big high. <laughs> I ran to work, where I work in, and I have my, was my best friend, I know him, he's Iraqi, but I know him in Syria. And he's also gay, but in closet gala as me. And there, when I was working, and I told my, man, my boss, he's open mind guy, he's living in America, so he's really open mind. In Syria, you really don't see a lot of open mind people, trust me, when I say he's open mind, it's me like, woo, open mind. <laughs> so, and the time there, I, I told him what's happening. He told me, you can stay for us. We'll find you a place to stay. I said, cool, awesome, yay, support. 
I got, I got, we rent house, me and my best friend, and I live there, and I'm still working. I said, okay, I'm now on my own. I have no family. And one day, my, my best friend called me, told me to not come to work. I said, like, why? I think you'll be shorthanded, you know, you need me. He's like, no, don't come. I said, okay. So I left to work, like, late on in the night. And I saw his face bleeding, like a pink eye and scar, scar and stuff. So what happened to you? He's like, well, your brother was here. So what? It's like, yeah, your family find out where you're working and they was looking for you. Say shit. Oh, I can't say that, yeah? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know what I need to do. So, and he said, you can't be here. We need to take you out the country. And where I want to go? I have nobody out Syria. I don't know anybody in Syria to know anybody out Syria. He's like, well, we have to go because, you know, it's, now it's dangerous. So I take his advice and we went next day to the government. I make passport and I left to Jordan because the only country I can travel without visa. Just I need my passport. So I went and I have nobody there and I know nobody. I spent very while, like a few months homeless. I am looking for a job. I don't know what I am. But at least they were speaking Arabic. So it was easy for me to come looking for a job. But it was not easy to find a job. I find a job in a small town there. Was, I work in wintertime, was is like a, a shawarma place. I don't know if you guys like shawarma. It's delicious food, by the way. So I was working there in wintertime, and in summertime, I was working in ice cream shop. That's how I met my first boyfriend, while I was selling him ice cream. This was really good. There was the wrong person in the right time. Uh, it it's really was completely stranger, but was good, was I need it. One day my owner, uh, the owner of the, uh, the shop heard me talking on the phone with my best friend about my boyfriend, and he kicked me out. He told me, we don't need the F word in this place. So I left, I have no place to go, I don't know anybody. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed to say, I went to, in 2009, in the beginning of 2009, I went to UN to apply for refugees, want them to come here to free them to be free. But this is really not easy to like just apply for refugees like, hey, I want to come to America. Like, yeah, go tomorrow. But it's not. <laughs> it's, it's really not. It's, it's a lot of people really don't know how the process for a refugee program is really rough. It's not easy. It's middle thing. They, they call you for interview like today and like after 10 days, after one month, after six months, after one year, after two years, after three years, you still interview every couple months. And still ask you same question kind of but different way and different people to see if you lying, people watching you, camera on you, glasses between you and people. So it's really, really secure really to make sure you're not lying or you're not coming here to do bad stuff for this country. And I hope nobody does. So I'm processing doing my paperwork and all this kind of stuff, but I'm still, I have no choice. I'm waiting because I can't leave Jordan to any state or any country because I will lose my case if I left. So I stayed in Jordan. Well, the only option I have. And then in, in Jordan, one day, uh, oh, after he kicked me out from work, I went to the UN to help me for job, to I find job because I really need to work. And they can't help me because they're not allowed to give me job because it's supposed to be not working. So, but one lady tell me, hey, go there, maybe ask for a job. So I say, thank you. I walked to there like maybe four miles because I did not have money to afford the car. It was summertime and I was having long hair. I was a mess. 
When I got to this place, I asked for the owner, and they told me he's this office. And I walked to him, and I'm like, this is my story, and I really, I know he's inside a closet guy. So I told him what happened with me, and he told me, okay, we, do you need money now? I told him, no, I don't need, I'm not coming here to ask for money. I'm asking for a job. So he gave me a job as bartender. In the meantime, I was there, and my boyfriend was in a different city. So one day I went to him in 2012. I was going, like usual, I visit him. And I go in there, and three guys stopped me in the road and really beat me really bad. <laughs> and they take my money. And I know these people, they gangster people. Like, I know them. They have background check, background history with jail and stuff, but not, they're not my friends. But they really beat me. This was calling me names and telling me what, who I am and all scam bad stuff. But I tried to fight back, but really, these three guys really beat me. Sorry, I could do a thing about it. Sorry about it. Anyway, after that, I went to work because I did not have money to go to hospital or anything about it. But I think, well, it's happening, guys, fight. And I went to work next day, and my boss told me, no, you should go to UN and tell them what happened. And I'm like, they will not accept me if I don't have an appointment. They, he said, go. So, well, I take Gurja, and I went to the UN. I told him, hi, I need to meet somebody. And they say, well, do you have an appointment? I'm like, really, I don't, but I really need to see somebody. I said, sorry, you have to have an appointment. So I take my glasses and I show her my neck. I told her, do you think now I need an appointment? And she said, like, no, wait for a second. So she let me in, and I see uh, what's called cancer, cancer. Uh, you know, these people have a problem, family, so cancer. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> So this lady, when I told her what happened, she told me, wait one minute, and she called another lady, and this lady come, it was lawyer. I don't know what she does, but I know she's a lawyer. And this was in 2012, like maybe in May-ish, or before May, sorry, before May. I don't know what's months before May, but the month before May. <laughs> <laughs> and... She told me, don't worry, we'll take care of you. And then they sent me to another building and so many tests, health tests, blood drying, all this kind of stuff. Teach me about culture, American culture a little bit for three days. And I, in May 12, and sorry, May 12, May 7, at 11.30 p.m., I was here. Yes. Thank you. When I got here, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to tell you about my flying here because it was really confusing because I stopped in four places and I have no idea what I am and I don't speak English. But the good thing from Germany to here, I was drunk on the plane. <laughs> it's really helping. It really did help. It really did help. I, trust me, it does help so much. When I got to you, to Boise, when I got the plane going smaller and smaller and smaller, <laughs> I got to Boise Airport. I see nobody. And I walk, I ask, like, I really, I'm not joking. I said, no, I said, nobody I see. Like, so I follow signs, like, for package stuff. So I went there and was my caseworker, thanks for ARC, by the way, that's my agency where I come from and was my caseworker and my best friend who was, was with me in Syria, he was here, waiting for me. And they took me to the to hotel for first night, was like, I felt like I'm a king, you know? <laughs> like all this take care of me and like, 
but I don't speak English. By the way, I don't speak English. When I'm saying I don't speak English, I say hi and smile all day. <laughs> That's where I was when I'm saying I don't speak English. When, when I got, okay, I want to tell you this, my special story about Boise. Really, I love Boise so much. A lot of people don't understand why I love Boise, but I really do. When first time I had to go to English Language Center for refugees, it's, first I went there was like for washing hand, how you clean yourself before go to interview. I was want to tell the teacher like, do you, I need to know how shave my face, you know? <laughs> But I do understand, later I did understand, like they have a lot of different culture, they have to show them what's going on. So, but first, I, am, I don't know. My first day, I, they give me, in my agency, give me like maybe book, have address on it, where I have to go f taking the bus to the English language center, it was in 13th Street in Boise. So I'm like being smart, I wanna go by bike, I wanna know where I live, so I follow the bus from Curtis to downtown. I don't know why I did not go on the bus, but I did follow the bus. Don't ask. And when I went to 13th Street, I was following each bus like, oh, you come from this number and you take five, number five, and you follow number five, you stop on this street, and then you have to walk. But I don't know what I have to walk. So I saw women. And really, I'm, uh, by the way, I did not trust anybody before in my life. Like after what happened with me, my family, what happened in Jordan, I really have issues. I was like, I don't trust anybody. I don't feel connection with anybody. It was bro something broke in me. But this woman, and I really wish to see her one day, and I tell her how much she changed my life. For one thing she did. When I asked her, I said, hi, and I give her the address I have in my hand. She just grabbed my hand, hand by hand, and walked with me cross street and told me, this is the door, good luck. <laughs> this, the moment happened when she did that, it did open so much stuff in my heart, I think I don't have it anymore. I think I, I've never felt it before like now, or what happened at the time. And I know that here in Boise, people accepting, people love, people, don't care where you come from. They care you good, you nice, you like, you respecting. This is what they worry about. So this is my first experience, boys. This is why I loved. So tonight, Tony here, and she can speak a lot about because she know me from first day I was here. She my job curse worker, something like that. I don't know what's her title exactly, <laughs> but because why I don't know her title because she did help me a lot, like for. When I got my first job, my second job, when I rent house, she was giving me her own time and helped me with it. So my first job was a funny job. And when I walked to Tony, after 15 days, I'm here. Because they, you know, the agency helped refugees, they give them money, every month was in my time $119 cash to like pay cigarette or whatever I need, but was not enough time, technically. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's amazing, you know, it's amazing. They give you money. So I was, when they give me this money, well, I'm, I'm working now, my job to find job. That's what they pay me for. They help me go to English Language Center. They help me to find, like, how go apply for a job. It was Tony her job, this job, to, to explain to people. 
So I went to her after 15 days. I was asking any Arabic people I know because I don't speak English. So I was my strength to ask Arabic people. Hey, do you know anybody want to hire? Do you know anything? So they give me application for a cleaning job. And I went to Tony. Hey, of course, I have a translator because I don't speak English. So I told her, I have an application. Please help me fill it. So she did. And we send it. She sent it to this company. And she went with me to the first interview. And the guy there, she, I don't know if she explained to him because she did not tell me I don't speak English. But the person who did the interview, he was explaining to me in physical explaining. Like, oh, do you know how vacuum or vibe or this kind of stuff? So I said yes. So I got my first job. How I learn English. I did not go to school yet. But how I learn English. From people who staying in office, I know a lot of you guys working sometimes over 5 o'clock like, you know, when the janitor coming to clean and you see some people cleaning off. And people was there give me one word every single day. And the next day ask me about it. Hey, do you remember yesterday what we talked about? So I start pick up word day by day and start speaking. I did not need any more trans translator with me. So it was good. I got my first job after 15 days. And then Tony helped me with my second job in like as dishwasher. And sometimes when you do something from your heart, you got what you look for. Because my second job, how I got it, I was helping a guy or a man unloading the car. I did not know he's the owner of the restaurant, and he gave me the job without interview. <laughs> Remember that, Tony, huh? Just you need to go by your heart, like, you know, help people. And because this is what Boise teach me first I got here, or till now, always pay it forward. I never pay it back. I pay it forward. It's an amazing system, and I love it. So after my second jobs, and like as cleaning offices and dishwasher, and then I find where I work now uh, in BND Food. It's food processing company. It's amazing, Bongram, or a company, not Bongram. <laughs> yeah. But the company I work for now, I start as just regular employee, and now I'm manager. Yeah, huh? see, you believe that? <laughs> it's, it's really amazing, and everybody in my work, they know I'm gay. And everybody, like, who cares? <laughs> Thank you, guys. And, and on top of that, on top of that, when I got, a lot of people ask me, do I still contact with my family? Yes, I do, but how happened? I need to explain that. After I got here and after I started working two jobs and I had money in the meantime, my family lost all the money because of the war, because I left Syria before the war, so my family was wealthy. But when I, the war happened, my family lost everything, really everything. So they really don't have any money. So what I did, I sent money to my dad and I called him after seven years. And I told him, hi dad, you have money in your name. I know you don't want to talk to me, but this money in your name. And first thing he did, he cried so bad. And I've never seen my dad cry. And he told me, you're the only son I want to kill before now because you, we have foods. <laughs> you know? Like, so me and my family now, we're very good friends, but they don't talk about my fiance. Like, oh, how is your friend? <laughs> He's good. He's really good. I just, I think I'm taking too much long time, so I need to finish. 
But I just want to say, uh, Boise, it's our, uh, let's say, America, because if did not, I did not have a proof, I will never have this, what I have now. And I just appreciate every single thing happened to me in Boise. And every single person give me one word. It's mean a lot to anybody when you speak. When you say nice word to a person, you have no idea what you do in his heart, what you change his life. Like this woman grab my hand and walk with me, it changed my life. Make me trust people. Because I was always afraid. I was always thinking people will hurt me. People will want to kill me for no, no reason. That's why like, my country did not accept me being gay. You know, like I have nothing to do with it, just who I am. But here I, 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 I saw love. I saw, I felt it and people support. My fiance always support me and I love him so much. He's everything to me. I know I talk about him a lot, but me can feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people ask me, why Boise? <sighs> I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> Why I stay in Boise? Because, you know, I come, I have nobody. I can go to any country or any state. But Boise, it's, it's really, people think it's a small city or big city. For me, it's a city of love. In Boise, I did not have to run anymore. I did not have to worry if I hold my boyfriend's hand. I did not have to worry I'm Arabic or I'm refugee or I'm gay. I did not have to worry. People accept me who I am and that's amazing. So I, I, I just want to say thank you, every, all of you, to listen to my story. Thank you to Boise, to these people I don't know who support of us. Thank you for all this love. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Bob Haycock, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Anna Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the Run Show sponsor, Sage Yoga and Wellness. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. And show photography is by Paul Budge. Our musical guest was Rippin' Brass. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support the story program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Thank you.